everybody and welcome to our first podcast of the game chat series on design talk or how the Swedish residents of the new home, a country of our special guest today would say. Hey Alioppa, welcome to your podcast. I'm Liana. And I'm Janine. Welcome. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, narrative design and the role of the writer and the video game industry in general and some of the demands of working on game projects as a narrative designer. To kick us off, narrative design is crucial to the overall design of the game, but perhaps not really widely understood. What does that entail in a day for you? Sure, yeah. Um, I think the role of a narrative designer is, it's a really interesting job title because it kind of differs across studios and even differs within studios. <laughs> it really depends on the game that you're making and the team setup. But I'd say overall, it's about designing how players experience the narrative of the game. So while that can be through dialogues and cutscenes, which is more of the game writer's job, and there are narrative designers that work as game writers as well, um, the design part of narrative design usually involves more mission design or quest design. So you can find yourself using visual scripting tools and working in the game editor to create missions and implement, you know, whatever you might need for that mission narratively. So NPCs, props, objective markers, all of that um, is the narrative designer's responsibility while designing the flow of the mission and the pacing of the narrative for the player. Do you do that as a team with other people? Like Yes, absolutely. So um, narrative design really interacts with pretty much every discipline in games. There's no getting away from collaboration. <laughs> you, you know, you'll need art for character design and props. You'll go to level designers for your locations. You'll go to audio for your recording, UI for how, you know, certain information should be communicated. So most of my days are a big mix of meetings with all these different stakeholders while also working on my own content. It's a very, very collaborative process. But the content is yours in terms of the, the, the narrative element of it. If that's not done as a team. Um, in some Sometimes it really depends, actually, because, yeah, I mean, say, for example, I need a particular prop for um, a particular part of a mission. I will request that. But um, a good idea can come from anywhere. And I think anyone working in games is a storyteller. You know, level design could suggest something that they want to do that they think is really cool. And how can we work it in as a narrative team? So, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, I would be really interested in the several steps of the process. Like I, I wrote something about uh, emerging native or iterative game design and also like MDA process. So how this all like work together? Are there like several steps you have to do before you came up with an, a great idea or how does it work? Yeah, definitely. I, I think, again, it's something that differs a lot across projects and across studios, but um Generally speaking, I, I caught the end of, of your lecture there, Alan, actually, before I joined. And um, you do have, you know, the whole paper design um, elements and you have prototyping long before you decide if something is going to get the director go ahead to go into the game. And especially in pre-production, you have a lot of freedom and flexibility to try out different things, talk to different teams and see if something feels fun and if it feels good before it gets committed to actually being in the build all right so you don't have really like five steps you always follow so just like be different every time you work with something else 
I guess there is a a certain process we will always follow, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's always five steps. It kind of depends on the game that you're making and it depends on what the content is. If it's something for the main campaign, for example, it's going to have a lot more scrutiny, a lot more planning than if it was something you're developing for side content or, um, you know, it would also depend on the scope of your game and it will depend on the cost of what it is that you want to implement. So there are definitely some things that go through very strict approval processes. And then there are other things that you can be a bit more free with. Okay. And which are these very strict approval processes? So aside from the general paper design and then the prototyping, once you feel like you have something that works, you will also need to pitch it. Uh, depending on your your game studio setup, in, in my case, it would be pitching to leads and pitching to directors. Then they will play your prototype version. You'll also need to get a lot of buy-in from, from other teams, of course, because like I said, it's such a collaborative process. If you want to do a crazy cutscene, or if you, if you want to make the player do something that has not been done in the game yet, and it's something that's quite a departure then yeah, you're going to need to go through lots of different teams and their directors as well to make sure everyone's on the same page. And this is something people actually want to do. Okay, great. Thank you. I was wondering as well if you could tell us how the narrative of a, a game feeds in, in a two-way kind of process with game development dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think ideally narrative and gameplay should develop in parallel you know there, there might be technical limitations that are going to affect the scope of your story or or likewise you might you know want to do something very particular with narrative that can lead to the development of new tech so yes they need to feed into each other as much as possible um no team can really work in a silo you, you know you you need to have that collaboration and like I said before, you know, I think everyone working in games is a storyteller to an extent and other teams can have some really fun ideas that they will bring to the narrative team about things that they want to try. Uh, Alan here. I've heard game designers saying that there's nothing that's replaced the game Bible yet, but they'd mm. like something to replace the game Bible. Um, how do you create, uh, where do you fit into the backstory development Um how how do you ma maintain that? Because the backstory in the, the game Bible stuff is often hidden material, isn't it? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, especially if you consider like, you know, character lore and, and things like that. But um, I think having a backstory is something that really drives player curiosity. I mean, it's a big part of player motivation. You know, they, they want to learn more about the world that they've chosen to spend some time in. And that doesn't all have to be through dialogues or through cutscenes. You know, you can do an awful lot with environmental storytelling. And, and that's, you know, a great time for, for narrative and environment artists to work together to sort of set the scene. Like if you play a game and there are a pile of bodies in the corner, you know, like no one needs to say anything. You know, something bad has happened here. Um, and that drives that player curiosity a bit more. So I think you know, in terms of how you message this to the player, it doesn't always have to be in their face. You can have audio collectibles and, and people who love lore and who love learning more about the game world, they will go collect all of those and they'll listen to them. And people who are more interested in, in gameplay might skip over them. But, um, you know, you can also have graffiti or posters or letters or, or overheard conversations. You know, that kind of backstory really helps to build the complexity of your world. And even if it's not, 
fundamental to understanding the game narrative. It makes your world feel a lot richer. So there are, you, you invest a lot of effort. I presume there are structures and ways of working that allow you to keep coherency and avoid dissonance in the narrative and the, the game design as it evolves over time, possibly over multiple versions. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, in my opinion, anyway, that the best game experiences are when you can avoid that ludonarrative dissonance as much as possible. You want to have a really strong relationship between the game narrative and the game mechanics, which is partly why you end up working so closely on the narrative team with level designers and with, you know, combat designers and environment artists, um, because you want the experience to be cohesive. You don't want it to feel disjointed in any way. And I think playtesting and prototyping and getting feedback from other teams helps that a lot. Yeah, in, in my experience, ones, the ones where we marry gameplay and narrative together are, are the most memorable as well. I'm thinking of um, uh, What Remains of Edith Finch. I'm sure you're all familiar with that game. I'm not going to spoil anything in case anyone isn't. But um, there is a particular, I mean, all of that game marries, uh, you know, design and narrative perfectly in my opinion but particularly the canning scene in the factory where the players movements are matching what the character is doing while they're imagining a different place that's that is such a great way to have narrative and game mechanics be intertwined it's a really it's a it's a very short game um but it is a really interesting game in terms of narrative design i i really enjoy um Skyrim and stuff so they're the it's I know that's not really what you were just talking about but in terms of the bible that you were talking about yeah the first bible I ever got was with uh one of the Skyrim games and it just drew me straight in oh wow yeah no, I know I love Skyrim I think Skyrim is a fantastic example of how you can really create your own playground I mean you know it, it's an open world and yes there is a main campaign and there are side quests to follow but it's all about how the, the systems interact with each other as well. And you can create your own narratives in that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really great example of, of narratives in an open world game, I think. Um, Put a lot of hours into Skyrim. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I'm almost Maybe embarrassed. Yeah, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Same, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it ate a lot of my time, especially yes. in the pandemic year. <laughs> I actually bought myself The Witcher 3. Uh, but I haven't played it yet. It's been sitting on the PlayStation for the last couple of weeks and I'm putting it off until midterm. Oh, you won't uh, regret but, it. <laughs> no, but I'm way behind the times as well. Like, <laughs> No, great games are always great. You can enjoy them whenever. I, I love The Witcher 3. I think it's another fantastic narrative game, but it also gives the player a lot of freedom. I've got a question about that idea of each player having their own narrative and yet, the game designer and the publisher wants to bring people along or is there a value in bringing people along with a central narrative too? And how, how do those, those two things relate? Because some games are completely open-ended in terms of where you go. So one player talking to another might have completely contrasted. They might as well be playing different games. Yeah. I think the role of the main campaign um it's there to sort of drive the player and to make sure that they're curious about the world and that they want to be the hero if that's the role they're playing and they want to finish this handcrafted experience that the developers have worked on. But I don't think the role of the main campaign is to not allow for distractions, especially in an open world. You know, you want players to explore 
and experience the full depth and range that the world has to offer. And especially if you have a game like Skyrim or like The Witcher 3 that has hundreds of hours of content, you know, you want people to sort of dive in and have their own experiences and have these emergent narratives and they can still come back to the main campaign whenever they feel like it. I, I feel like the, the two don't detract from each other. I would absolutely agree on that um, because I, but you also need that main storyline to, to make it a well-rounded game so that it has that beginning, middle and end, you know, that. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously biased <laughs> as a as a narrative designer and a game writer. I'm like, yes, story, always story. Um, but I, I think too, narrative, it's not just the story you tell. You know, it's your world, it's it's the characters in the game, it's the systemic narrative experiences. All of that is your game narrative. And all of that can offer a narrative experience that wasn't even intended or even authored. But I think players, you know, you want players to care a lot about the characters they meet in games, even more so than the story. Um, sometimes, you know, a, a simple story with complex characters is going to be more memorable and, you know, hopefully uh, easier for players to follow as well than something that is a story that's too complex. So even if the if even if the main story isn't driving players forward, their interest in certain characters can and, and it can lead them to pursue new quest lines with them. Or if you have a game with dialogue choice players will want to choose the one that impresses the character they like. I mean, I am a very big Mass Effect fan, but I don't think I've ever played properly um, a Renegade playthrough because I always want to be nice <laughs> to the characters. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think even with like, even multiplayer games that have, um, you know, maybe not a, a structured narrative, you can still have a meaningful narrative, you know, like Journey, which is, a narrative game in my opinion but it's it's completely wordless and it's multiplayer so yeah i don't think you need to worry about a main campaign that will drive players to the end although of course you will want them to experience this beautiful story you've created but if they love your characters they're going to come back and they're going to play it again and they're going to replay it and they're just going to spend time in your world and that's what you want um, I have a little culture question here because like the main point is like to identify with your, with the character. And I saw you just made like a German play as well, like the Magisha Trends calendar. And the question is how you can like create a successful story for a different culture that maybe value other things so that they can identify and play this game. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think. You know, there are lots of story structures out there. Um, I mean, Hero's Journey, of course, is is very well known. But I'd also say it's it's not a template. It's more of a framework. Like, I don't think anyone, um, or at least <laughs> at least in my opinion, none of the writers that I know would, would like to use something like that as a checklist for their mm -hmm. story. Um, but instead, they want to look at you know, universal character traits, you know, what makes people tick, what are their struggles? And it's part of what makes game development so much fun as a writer, in, in my opinion, because, you know, you have a writer's room and you're bouncing ideas around and you're, you're trying to help each other avoid cliches. So you're not going through a checklist of what will make this story universally appealing, but hopefully what will make your characters appealing or interesting is what's more important. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I think sometimes a structure, a formal structure is best appreciated when it's broken and you break mm. it deliberately. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. So maybe what does a day look like for a narrative designer or a writer on a game team? It's very different depending on the game you're making and the team that you're in. For a game writer, we're responsible for every piece of text in the game. So that can mean, you know, the stories and the characters and the dialogue, but it's also, you know, writing item descriptions and objective text and menu text and loading screen text. Um, so, you know, games have a lot of text, uh, even ones you think maybe don't, they, you know, they have a lot. Um, and so the game writer is responsible for all of that. And then for the narrative designer, um, in some teams, they will also be the writer. And then in other teams, they won't write at all. Their job will be more about the pacing of the mission and the narrative elements the player will experience. And that is a very collaborative job. Not to say that writing isn't, but you can end up doing a lot of writing on your own or with the team before you get to reviews. Whereas if you're actually designing a mission in engine, you're going to be communicating with artists, programmers, you know, with UI, with audio. So the day can be a very big mix of running between all those different people. <laughs> I'm thinking that that would also uh, mean that you're running multiple projects at the same time, because sometimes the software and the art uh, asset and the design, those design elements take a lot longer. Is that right? Or would you be in sync? It, again, it depends. I think, yes, definitely. Sometimes you are working ahead on something and then in other times you are in sync. It depends on what stage you are at in the actual design as well. Like if you are still in the prototype stage or if you are you know, starting at first pass, a lot of things are going to be temporary and placeholder while you are trying to get your idea across of what you want this to do for the player. But of course, as you move further down the pipeline, more and more teams will be in sync when you're creating the final experience. So all of the writers content gets localized at some point does that create any particular problems in the process I, I mean in my my experience at localization has all been with in-house software so i i don't really have any experience of issues that might arise i've been very lucky in that regard but i i'm sure i can imagine situations where there are you know especially when you consider um line length in different languages if you want to make sure your subtitles appear nice and neat on one line you know, you have, to, you have a certain amount of characters, of course, in English, but then when that's getting, lo getting localized into German, it's going to be a lot longer. I know that in the past, we have tried to sort of keep lines to a certain character length before they go on to a new line, just to make sure it looks nice and neat for players experiencing that in any language. And in terms of captioning, your work is prepared essentially for uh, prepares the, the product for captioning, doesn't it, for uh, disability access and, or just people who like to see the written script? Yes, definitely. And that's something as well that, you know, UI and, and UX would work on very closely to make sure that, um, you know, the accessibility is as it needs to be for players. Do you ever get any any sort of uh, changes when it comes to voice acting coming into play uh, that the way they say it isn't the way you wrote it? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that can be fun sometimes because there's a line that, you know, you didn't really imagine a certain way, but the actor will bring a whole different vibe to it. And 
it's fun. I mean, I guess it's an ego thing, but I do love hearing actors read my lines. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's really amazing to hear that. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the actors are incredibly talented and they know what they're doing. And we provide context for lines um, so that they understand what is happening in the scene and what the general mood is. But generally, I like to let them find the character themselves as well. And if they say a line differently to how I imagined it, you know, it's often better. So <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> On that note, we are getting right up to time. I think we're just after 11. So um, I'd like to thank you very much for the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us from Sweden. Is it? Are you in Sweden at the moment? Yes, I'm in Sweden. Yeah. Diana, our co-host here, is also Swedish. Oh, it's in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and insights into the craft of narrative and game design. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks, <laughs> Mickey. <laughs> oh, thanks, <laughs> <Back to> Mickey. <laughs>